Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. We've had so many great guests on our first 49 episodes, but we've never really slowed down and taken a holistic view of the field. So this week, for our 50th episode, we're taking it back to basics and answering the question, what is impact investing? What do impact investments look like across asset classes? And are there particular impact areas that are more or less conducive to this type of investment? And most importantly, is it working and who's holding the field accountable? Joining me on this episode is impact investing thought leader, Rahana Nathu, the founder and CEO of Spectrum Impact, a strategy consulting firm that supports a range of organizations looking to expand their impact investing footprint. Prior to founding Spectrum Impact, Rahana led the Impact Investing Program at the Case Foundation. She helped design the Bank of New York Mellon's Social Finance Program and Pilot Impact Investment Fund, helped lead the Rockefeller Foundation's Impact Investing Grant-Making Program, and she also teaches impact investing and social finance in emerging markets within Georgetown University's Global Human Development Program. So let's jump into the conversation with Rahana. Rahana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am uh, I'm excited for this one. This is our our 50th episode of Money and Meaning and um we're having a discussion that that frankly probably should have been our first episode <laughs> which is which is what is impact investing. We've had a number of great guests on the show who are all doing work that fall under this this umbrella of impact investing, but we've never really backed up and and started from the beginning. Right. So before we dive into that, can you give us a little bit of background on your work and, and what you do? I'm happy to, and I'm honored to be on show number 50. So that's super <laughs> exciting. I um, So I run an impact investing consulting company called Spectrum Impact. We're about two years old, and we essentially help organizations figure out what their impact investing approach should be. So I'm sure, um, based on the conversations you've been having on this show and just out in the field, you know better than most that there's such a range of organizations and individuals that are trying to build impact investing programs. And often, a lot of organizations know that they want to do it. They're just not quite sure how to operationalize that. And crossing that chasm between intention and action is really, really difficult, whether you've been in the space for about 12 years or whether you're brand new. So we essentially try and help bridge that gap. We we work with organizations or families or individuals that have said, I want to do impact, I just don't know how, and, and take a very management consulting approach to that. So it's very much a, a strategy set of tools that we bring to the problem. Great. Well, what is impact investing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah, start there. You, yeah, that's right. That's the right place. It, uh, it depends on who you ask and the time of day. Um, <laughs> that's probably a good caveat right? for the conversation yeah. is that, yeah. you know, this isn't, uh, everyone would maybe have a slightly different answer, but. Totally. But. Depending on what the weather is like and where in the world you're living. If you're my mm. grandma, um, <laughs> I think, I think she's landed somewhere between law and business, neither of which are actually correct. So, um, but bless her. She's excited about it every single time. Um, so I would define impact investing, kind of how the gin does the the global impact investing network um and we're lucky to have that sort of industry body to sort of hold the line on on the alphabet soup but my definition would be pretty aligned with that so it's investments into companies funds organizations individuals you name it that have a dual purpose sometimes a, a 
threefold purpose, sometimes a fourfold purpose. But broadly speaking, it's the intention to generate some acceptable level of returns, financial returns, and some desired level of social impact or social outcome. So in that bucket, in the in the double bottom line, if you will, I think the social impact or social outcome can be replaced with an environmental one. It can be replaced with a systemic change one, a behavioral finance one. You sort of get to pick the range of types of non-financial outcomes. But I think it's meant to indicate we're not just making this investment to generate a very typical return, that there's another set of goals that exists that are part of the intention of doing this in the first place. And I think a lot of impact investors, myself included, would argue that if either of those dimensions is a failure, so either you don't generate the return that you expected, and I know we'll get into the conversation on concession shortly, (laughs) Uh, or you don't hit the types of outcomes or the level of social impact outcomes that were expected, it's a failure. So even if you make an investment that has a 10x return, you know, you've moved into a conversation with other Silicon Valley unicorns, life is great. Even if that's the case, it's a brilliant investment. It's not a successful impact investment. And I think a duality of importance on the social impact and then the financial is a big part of what sets impact investment apart from traditional investing. Thanks. And you you alluded to the next question <laughs> you knew was coming. It's 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 the first question you get from everyone and it is impact investing necessarily concessionary or below the the financial returns that you would, you know, receive from quote unquote traditional investments. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a necessary question because it comes up all the time. The only reason it's even top of mind is because I think you have a really good roadmap of where we're go- where we're going in this conversation. So, I would say that that the short answer is impact investing is not inherently concessionary. So, often what people sometimes forget about impact investments is that they are investments first. Without the generated return, without the anticipation of revenue, and in some cases profit, the investment ceases to exist in the first place. So if we were trying to stack higher order principles, I would argue that the investment part of it is a key, key criteria for us to even be having the conversation. And in the investment universe, as you know, and many of your listeners do too, the conversation around when or when not to make an investment is really a conversation around the balance between risk and return. So the risk that you're willing to take on and the return that you expect or anticipate based on the risk you are willing to take on. And so a conversation around concessions is really a conversation around investment, right? Are you interested in an investment vehicle that may lose either your principal or your expected return, any any ancillary benefit after that? And if the answer is yes, and then you bundle in the impact outcomes, I would say it's still an impact investment. It's just, as you said, a concessionary impact investment. But inherently in the definition, I don't think that it's concessionary. I think there's so many opportunities to deploy investment mechanisms in areas that are actually just underrepresented and underleveraged. And a traditional investor would probably say, that's alpha. That's great. I'm first to market. Mm-hmm. There's an opportunity here. So in that sense, I think they don't necessarily mean the same thing, concessions and impact investing. And and what does impact investing look like across different asset classes? Yeah. The asset class taxonomy, I'm really glad you asked that because I think that continues to be the best way that we've found to talk about it. And sometimes it gets lost. So you know, some folks think that impact investing is its own asset class. I think the difficulty with that is that it negates the core differentiator between asset classes. So asset types 
are mostly bundles of tools, securities, whatever whatever you're dealing with that have a very similar risk return profile. So when we say that impact investment is its own asset class, we're actually negating all of the different types of varying risk that are involved in this field like any other field. So to your very thoughtful question, I think the impact investment tools have to match the asset classes that they are being deployed onto. They have to there has to sort of be a real connection based on asset type, which means that they look really different. So in the public equities market, there are sort of a set of characteristics that help define impact investing. Everyone has their own version of the definition, but ours is intentionality, measurement, and transparency. And so typically speaking, in impact investment, as you build more intentionality into your investment decision-making, often risk gets higher, right? Because you're Mm -hmm. trying to do something that is sort of unprecedented in the market. When you're in the public equity space and you're selecting in or screening out public companies, there's only so much intentionality you can have. You can have intention on your decision-making process, but unless you are a primary shareholder in a certain company and being invited to board meetings and voting all your proxies, there's only so much you can do with that intentionality, which is why in the public markets we see mostly values-based investing. So I believe in X, so I'm going to take out Y. In the impact investing sector, we mostly see that deployed towards private investments where you have the decision to source, find, and grow a company that is built fit for purpose. So I think that there is, um, and it's not a hard and fast rule, but there is sort of a connection between the type of impact investment and the asset class that it is perfectly deployed in. And then, of course, all kinds of exceptions that make that rule completely uh, useless. So Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing that a lot now, too. And by values aligned, you mean somebody saying like, I don't want to be invested in fossil fuel companies, or I don't want to be invested in private prison companies. And that's how they're making their investment decision. Or that's like, that's the first level decision. And then everything else is open to them in a pool of, you know, stocks that they can pick from. Yeah, totally. And I think that's why I think the conversation around intentionality, the focus of that changes based on the asset class that you're focused on. So when you're talking about intentionality on an individual investor level, you are choosing a portfolio that makes sense. Your values drive the conversation. When you're talking about intentionality as a fund manager, now you're building that into your selection process. So there is sort of a continuum, right, between passive reflection of values, all the way down to very active selection, construction, and investment. Mm -hmm. And to your point about impact investing as an asset class, it feels like that's shifted over the past, I don't know, three or four years, where, you know, originally people thought of impact investing as an asset class. So when they were thinking about their portfolio, it was like, all right, I'm going to have public equities, private equities, real estate, and 15% in impact investing. Right. And and now it's shifted. Now the terminology is more around like an impact lens and yeah. the idea being that every investment you make across all those asset classes is done with an impact lens, right? Is yeah. that is that right? Have you seen that as well? Yeah, that totally resonates with me. And I think it resonates with our clients too, mostly because we're, we, to your point about sort of being at this for a few years, we're in a position now where we have a very good evidence base of impact investment products in every asset class. So as we've been able, I think, to look at public equities, fixed income, private debt, venture, private equity, all the things that show up in in a very traditional allocation, we've started to be able to point to each and say, and an impact investment looks like X, and an impact investment looks like Y. And being able to do that, I think, get really tangible about impact across every asset class has, to your point, moved us away from this idea that it needs to be its own special allocation. We have had the unbelievable good fortune 
to work with a couple of clients that have really been on the leading edge around uh, gender lens investing. And typically speaking, so the idea, right, that you can create these screens in your decision-making process that really considers the impact on women and girls at multiple points in the investment value chain. And the idea used to be that the only way that you could really do that at the beginning, obviously that's not where we are now, but at the beginning, the only way that you could do that was in your public equity portfolio. And you would do that by counting the number of women on the board of a public company or the number of female CEOs in in a public company listing. And anyone who who you checked the box for was included in and anyone that who wasn't got a smaller share of your portfolio. We moved on from that. So, so that would suggest that, that was mostly a public equity strategy. We've moved on from that. So now we have you know, funds that are built specifically to provide capital to minority founders, which sort of have a dimension across gender and race. We have managers that only fund companies that deliver products and services for women and girls as a consumer market. So we've moved so far on. And for me, Gender Lens is the best example of starting from a philosophy of it can only live here in your investment portfolio and now actually being able to implement it in every single asset class. And that is super cool. You mentioned that that it looks different across different asset classes. Could you give like, like you know, for example, in, in real estate, there's a lot of discussion of like affordable and workforce housing. Totally. Right? Could, could you give another uh, an example, maybe at a high level of what that looks like in a couple different asset classes? For sure. So I think some of the best areas that we have really changed the game around climate and the environment are in the public asset classes. So you have these products, mostly ETFs, although they change a little Mm -hmm. bit, but you have products that actually go through public company disclosures and reward the companies that have the lowest carbon emissions and essentially, not punitively, but penalize those that do not in an investment product. So you can have a climate smart ETF where the companies that don't produce a lot of carbon get the majority of the ETF allocation and the companies that don't do very well are at the bottom end of the pile. And so when investors go out and look for climate smart products, more of their capital are going to these carbon wise emitters, right? People that are either reducing carbon emissions or figuring out ways to offset that carbon emission, which is an entirely different frontier that's kind of amazing to think about reversing (laughs) climate change, at least in some way. So for that reason, environment and I think climate specifically in a conversation around renewable energy really gets an opportunity to shine in the public markets. I think conversations around access to capital, so whether that's access to quality of life, access to financial services, um, access to social services, I think those conversations really thrive in the private market. So one of my absolute favorite funds out there, companies out there, excuse me, is Husk Power Systems, which really found a way to create multi-level impact around renewable energy generation in in rural parts of India. So it's a very simple idea, right? They took biodiesel, which is relatively, uh, it's a human labor intensive way of generating energy and found a captive workforce that was ready and willing to work and created multiple opportunities to harness energy, sell it, harness the waste, sell it. So a company like Husk would be prime target for um, an environmentally minded fund manager out there, right? Uh, Another great example at the fund manager level is Leapfrog. So Leapfrog has figured out a way to basically say that there are chunks of our population that are completely ignored by the insurance markets and the healthcare markets. And we are going to take the bet that if we invest in providing services, we will generate revenues. So if you look at the work that they did um, in South Africa around AIDS, if you look at the work that they've done around like health insurance and life insurance and emerging markets, they're basically saying, 
rest of the world, you're ignoring these customers. <laughs> we're not going to, and therefore we're going to generate a revenue and deliver some sort of impact. So I think, uh, I don't know if that totally answered your question, but I think there are some sectors where the examples thrive and then some, of course, where yeah, they no, that, that's great. And that's a good example of, to your point earlier about what uh, traditional investors would consider alpha, right? Like it's not, so you can totally. have market rate or above market rate returns by investing in these sectors that have been traditionally underserved by, by investments. Yep. So you, you've mentioned gender, race, sustainability, financial inclusion. Are there particular impact areas, whether social or environmental, that are more conducive to, to impact investments? And then, you know, on the other side, maybe less conducive? Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that answer would probably change based on who you're talking <laughs> okay. to. So I'll give you, I'll give you my take. Um, I think so earlier we were talking a little bit about the characteristics of impact investment. And I mentioned super briefly that we're sort of aligned with the parts of the field that think that they're divided between intentionality, measurement, and transparency. And that middle piece, the measurement piece really is a Dicky Wicket, I think, for the impact investment yes. sector. Quite frankly, <laughs> we'll any, get there. any any sector. Yeah, I'm sure we will. <laughs> any sector. And so I feel like, you know, in answering your question, some of that answer is based on what's easy to measure and what's not. So I think in the conversation around environmental factors, particularly when we're talking about climate change, things like carbon emissions, waste emissions, water consumption, those are quantitative measures. It's pretty easy to go into a company and ask yourselves, how many hours a day do we keep the lights on? Where do we put our waste? Those are somewhat binary, mm-hmm. I'm oversimplifying, but somewhat binary quantitative measures. It is a lot harder to figure out whether an investment that you made into a portfolio company in an emerging economy actually changed somebody's quality of life. And it's unbelievably hard to do that without looking at multivariate factors like gender, like healthcare, like education. So in some sectors like the environment, I think we've done a pretty good job of boxing in first order effects. In other sectors, like pretty much anything on the S side, on the social side, there is so much interconnectivity between race, culture, history, that I think it's actually really hard to figure out if one investment is working. I think we're finding better ways to do that. But I think in the impact sectors that are highly quantitative, it's just an easier conversation to have, particularly with investors that aren't really drinking this Kool-Aid. So environment would count, climate would count, parts of the gender lens investment universe around public company representation, all of that counts. The harder stuff is some of the stuff that I was trained on, which is the financial Mm -hmm. inclusion part of the world in emerging markets. And I think we're still, we have some really amazing examples, but we're still trying to figure out how to actually prove the case that A equals B. We're not, we're Mm -hmm. not quite there yet. Uh, Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a good lead into every company has both positive and negative impacts, right? I mean, you you could be totally creating jobs or, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. well, emitting carbon or, or, or it's a million examples. Right. How do, how do you balance this out when evaluating companies? Yeah. The intention piece of impact investing, I think, is equally important for not just the intention of the investment, but the intention of the investor. Sometimes the latter part of that conversation drops off for us because we're so focused on what is this dollar going to do? We don't really spend a lot of time talking about what does this investor want to do? And I think that's where the subjectivity of impact investing is actually a strength, not a weakness. So we have clients that sort of walk in the door that say to us, 
look, if we could solve the whole world and heal it, we'd love to. But based on our story, our purpose, our mission, our family, our wealth, what we really care about is X. Can we optimize for X? Once those objectives are set, it actually becomes pretty straightforward crafting an impact strategy that maximizes that outcome. Where we have the conversation around do no harm is mostly on negative externalities. So it kind of becomes a let's optimize for this thing that you want. Let's let's call it gender lens investing for a moment. Let's talk, let's pretend that it's access to services for women and girls. Let's create a program that maximizes that. And anything bad we're doing in that process, carbon emission, environmental footprint, let's pretty much minimize that externality. So instead of emitting X amount of carbon, can we cut that in half? Instead of emitting the carbon and not doing anything about it, can we think about a tax credit or some other incentive? Mm -hmm. So it's, it really, candidly, it's more of a conversation of minimizing that downside risk, but maximizing for an outcome that's not really part of the plan. Got it. So you're not, you're not comparing across industries. You're not saying like a reduction in tons of CO2 emissions is worth an increase in graduation rates or, you know, like you're not comparing across industry really. No, not really, unless those industries have a really close relationship. Like there's an unbelievable amount of research that's come out recently about the connection between climate and gender. So mm-hmm. that climate change disproportionately affects women, mostly because in, in in most of the world, contrary to popular belief, women women are kind of the head of the household, even if not in figure, then in practice, right? They're responsible for the children's education and the health and the care and the cooking and the, all this other, all these other multi-level effects. So unless it's that, I would say the answer to your question is yes, that that we don't really do that direct comparison. I think the only case in which that's not true is when we have clients that are designing several parallel programs. And this is a shift that we've seen recently in the impact investing work that we do. It used to be that everyone wanted one fund or one product that solved all the problems. And we're getting a little bit better at saying, okay, this is this is the product to really focus on gender. This is the product to really focus on climate. And when we have five, seven, 10 years under our belt, we'll think about synergies. Mm-hmm. Who, who's doing, to, to that point, who's doing impact investing? And how has that evolved over the last, I don't know, five years or so? Yeah. Yeah. Our, um, it's such an important question because I feel like each year more that I do this, the less clear I am on that answer, which is the (laughs) opposite. It's a good thing, probably, right? (laughs) You're right. You're right, right, actually. (laughs) It is a good thing for the field. It's a little complicated as a business owner, but it's a great (laughs) thing for the field. So I know that I don't need to tell you, but at at our inception, this really was about philanthropic actors creating a new marketplace. And it was a highly artificial, cultivated marketplace that wasn't quite running by itself. And then somewhere around 2013, I think we had these massive financial institutions step in because they understood that this was both a product offering in the wealth management space, and it was probably a better way to assess risk. And then following on their heels, we had these huge corporate entities that were really buying into the risk narrative, right? That if we're not looking at the role that gender plays in our labor force, maybe we're not thinking about maximizing output. All these mm-hmm. other like downside risks that people weren't talking about that were focused around human and planet. Now, most of who we deal with, quite frankly, are on-balance sheet fund managers or for-profit companies. So in that first group, I mean any investors out there that are standing up a fit-for-purpose investment vehicle of some kind. And the reason that I make that distinction is because who that is has changed so drastically. It used to be 
mostly family offices and corporate. So uh, a great example, not a client of ours, but a great example of this sort of connectivity is Salesforce Impact creates their Salesforce Impact Fund, right? So Salesforce, the parent company, has a very clear business offering, business line and mandate. They create the Impact Fund that sources innovations that are connected to that mandate. Mm -hmm. That used to be who really needed the kind of support that we would provide. Now it's families, it's nonprofits. We just did an unbelievable piece of work for the Equality Fund out in Ottawa that is a nonprofit sort of cedar with a government anchor around a, a $300 million investment vehicle with lots of different bells and whistles and parts of it. But who it is that stands up these funds has drastically changed. So we've changed alongside it. Uh, now we really just look for single allocators. Um, so whoever has the money to build the impact product, that's who we will work with. And those lines are really blurry. I mean, I never, I honestly, when I started this work, did not think that it was going to be dominated by nonprofits, but that's most of who's doing the work these days that we're incredibly proud of. Interesting. Um, it seems like there's been more of a focus on trying to democratize access to impact investing, though. Absolutely. Trying to take it from those family offices and those foundations and and bring it towards a more retail investor. Are you are you seeing that as well? Absolutely. I mean the democratization for us actually looks a little bit like translation. I was just talking to um a colleague a few days ago who was basically asking a a much more eloquent version of like what's your secret sauce. <laughs> and I found myself sort of saying to be perfectly honest we're not structuring anything that's new or totally innovative. We're not pioneering an investment discipline that no one's heard of. All we're doing is translating. We're taking investment concepts and diluting them for an audience that wants to think about change. And we're taking the benefit of social impact and sanitizing it for an audience that only thinks about return. It's a translating role. And because of that, I think we're actually able to democratize. One of the hangups around the investment sector writ large, but impact investing inclusively, is that we use a type of language, a type of alphabet that's not very accessible. And I don't mean mm -hmm. that from an intelligence perspective at all. I mean that from simplicity and clarity. We use all kinds of language that we don't need to. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, the, the success around democratization is actually that organizations far wiser than us, like the gin, like MIE, like Tonic, like SOCAP, there's all of these different methods to now simplify language. And that to me is why, why and how democratization is so much more within our reach now. Got it. Have, have you seen results of, I mean, the, the field has grown quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Are there, are you seeing improved outcomes in areas that impact investors have targeted? It's a great question. I, I mean, I don't especially know how easy that is to no. quantify. <laughs> no, I don't, maybe that's <laughs> it's a great question to ask. It's a great question to ask because it's kind of what we need to be thinking about, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, so is it working? And if it's right. not working, what's not working? Uh, on the most simple level, the the example I'm reminded of on a daily basis is just looking at in the public equity markets, especially during general market volatility that we're experiencing during this COVID pandemic. Um, looking at how some of the climate smart comparative products are doing, right? They're thriving. They're rising and thriving. So they're not just performing with much less volatility, but they're actually raising more cash. So people are flocking to them as a way to hedge risk. That's crazy. Like there were a small group of really thoughtful people that were saying pretty much since 2011 that this would happen. And this has been the first major moment with the exception of the financial crisis in 0809. This is the first major moment where we've been able to see like, Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> in a time of unbelievable uncertainty, 
there is an alternative that makes sense. But in other areas, I think I think we need time. So in a lot of like the private impact investment work, particularly in venture capital and private equity, we're just starting to see the funds that have really observed an entire investment cycle report out on performance, right? So like our our world, our universe sort of like expanded in 2007, 2008, 2020. We're just there where we're starting to see private fund performance. And there are equal parts, I think, a rush to declare that it's it's not working. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. And that it's salvation. And I think like all things, we're somewhere in between. Yeah. <laughs> the reality of the situation is that we're onto something. We just don't know what. Yeah. They, uh, a lot of the impact investing goals that we've talked about align yeah. with the public sector, right? yeah. education and healthcare and clean technology. What is the, the interaction between impact investing and the public sector? It's so interesting because we, I, uh, not to wax political or poetic, but <laughs> it, it, this whole, the whole sort of crazy world that we're living in right now is, I think on a personal level, been a reminder how different multi-sector service delivery has become. Like it, it, sometimes when I hear my, my folks talk, uh, in their time, there was very much a clear narrative on what government provides for its people and a very clear narrative on what private sector does mostly generates a salary, allows Mm -hmm. you to generate a salary to have a certain quality of life and what the civil sector did. And it was mostly around activism and engagement. I don't see that. I don't know about you, but I don't see that world as plainly in in my lifetime, right? That I mm-hmm. that there are examples of the private sector providing social service delivery, pay for success in the United States and Canada and parts of Australia and the UK are the best example of that, actually creating financial uh, incentives to deliver services better and at a higher quality, which saves taxpayers money. And then during during COVID, we're seeing all kinds of civil society stepping up and providing key essential services in a way that some governments are not. So for me, this conversation around public policy, I mean, the short answer is it obviously has to be inextricably linked. Otherwise, we're planning for a world that we don't live in anymore. But whose job is what? I think that's going to be one of the hardest questions that we try and answer in the next 10 to 20 years. I just, I don't think we know what's up anymore. And I think uh, impact uh, investing is one of very many tools that has moved away from your job is X and your job is Y and into a outcomes-driven approach, which I think is the direction we need to go. But what that actually looks like, besides obviously needing to look like something, I have no idea. I'm. This is the question I think that keeps me up at night is like, what, what role does everybody play now? Mm-hmm. One of the fundamental parts of impact investing, it seems like, is that In order to have that intentionality that you talked about, you need to be measuring for outcomes and, you know, at the second level impact. And that requires a level of long-term thinking that I think is not, it's it's less and less common maybe in traditional financial markets. What are you seeing in terms of like, does it need to be a more patient form of capital in impact investing? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think I think the traditional investment universe has no appetite for long-term thinking. You only need to look as far as like the stock market to understand that like you have about a quarter to do something meaningful. Yep. <laughs> Otherwise, punishment and reward is forthcoming. But I also think that like even even some of these other dimensions we've been talking about, like the policy arena or civic society, even in those arenas, we don't really have patience anymore, right? Like on the political sort of like 
earthquakes we've been through in the U.S. in the last 10 years, that that's evidence enough that nobody has tolerance to wait and see anymore. And I think one of the, so it's happening sort of across all dimensions, not just the investment universe, which is kind of scary. But one of the things that I think impact investing has started to do better that it didn't do before was shift the conversation from outputs. So what are the things that this investment did to outcomes? What are the changes that this investment made? And at the beginning, I think because we were, sorry, yeah. No, I was just going to say by that, you mean like, instead of tracking how many students participate in an after-school program, you're tracking an increasing graduation rate of that school. Nailed it. That's exactly right. And I think the reason that that's important is because we move away from what my mom used to call busy work, like we're doing (laughs) stuff, we're doing stuff, we're doing stuff to, oh, we've changed something. I think when we started doing this work, we were so appropriately fixated on bringing the investment sector along that we didn't want to take on this challenge. Outputs were fine. Fine. If we need to track IRRs over an annual period, no problem. We'll do that. And now that people are getting more comfortable with impact investing, we're actually moving towards conversations around how are we changing the system. And I am hoping that, that and impact investing is, of course, not alone in this. I am hoping that the change in discourse between, oh, look at this great fund that we developed to, oh, look how we changed education for low-income people in the United States is going to allow us to be a little bit more patient. There's no way that it happens unless all parts of society move in that direction simultaneously. But I don't know about you, but I I think, again, like in the, in the span of the last few months, the way that that conversation has taken over, I think is probably the best, the best part about where impact investing is headed, that yeah. we, we give ourselves space to have a conversation about what's going to happen 20 years from now without freaking out. Yeah. And you, you mentioned it earlier, but it's been encouraging the, we're recording this at the end of May, over the last couple of months of increased volatility, instead of seeing people pull back from impact investments towards, you know, quote unquote, right. safer investments, we're actually seeing a cash inflow, it seems like. Yeah, I think you're right. So it's 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 good because it, it could have gone either way. I don't think anyone, yeah, would, right. I don't think anyone would have known two months ago. What, and it's still That's early, right. but it seems That's like right. it's actually, you know, leading people to think more about how they're deploying their capital aligns with the world they want to be a part of. What so we talked a little bit about about measurement. That's a eternal conversation in impact investing. How right. and and accountability is the the second part of that. What yeah. are we seeing in terms of how we're measuring and standardizing that? It's such a it's such an important question because I think it's it's quite reflective of where I think we've done the best work, quite frankly, in the last five years. It's really been around the measurement space. Not to say that we haven't continued to do a lot of thinking on innovative mechanisms or democratizing the field per our earlier conversation or bringing more traditional investors in. But in my humble opinion, the measurement piece is where I think we have finally started to course correct in a really thoughtful way. So as you know well, the early parts of impact investing were mostly around impact measurement. uh, And we struggled for a while to find metrics and indicators that would tell us if things were working or not. Um, And again, have the incredible benefit of groups like the GIN or B-Lab or SASB or so many others that showed us how metrics could work. But what we didn't have was an ability to make any meeting meaning, excuse me, out of the things that we were measuring. So we've got, you know, 600 indicators on an Excel spreadsheet. Look at all these great things we measured. And it's like, I don't know, what does it mean? (laughs) Is it working? Did we do anything good? Did Mm -hmm. we just drive our entrepreneurs crazy by tracking all of this information? And so things like the Impact Management Project, IMP, or uh, things like the GIN's new IMM framework, 
uh, Tidelines Verification Services. There's so many things out there that are now taking measurement and putting management on top of it. So actually making meaning out of what we're measuring. And to your very, I think, probing question earlier about like, is it working, which is always what we should be asking ourselves. I think we're getting closer to answering that by shifting the conversation from impact measurement to impact measurement and management. All of that being said, I mean, that really thrives at the largest level of assets that thrives at the fund level or Mm -hmm. at the family office level. What do we do at the individual level? And I think the thing that I keep coming back to is that like in the private investment space, in the regional investment space, you have quite a range of things that show you if your impact is working. One of my favorite companies out there on the on the retail side is, is C-Note. Mm-hmm. And C-Note, right, creates a very tech-enabled, retail-savvy way of actually just deploying capital into your community. So you're you're actually able to track impact at the most grassroots level. Does it show you... I actually don't know the answer to this, but would it show you, I think, the individual lives affected over a long term? Probably not, because so much of our data is self-reported, but can you actually see where your money's going? Yeah. And I think if we can continue to use that momentum at the retail level of individuals, whether they be investors or consumers, demanding access to that transparency, I think we're actually talking about a whole new language here. I mean, it doesn't even need to live in the investment sector, right? With like 144 characters, you could put airline company X on blast. And all of a sudden, like next week, (laughs) they have a new program around diversity or inclusion or something. So we are, I think, as retail investors, more powerful. Is it power on the investment side? That I'm not sure of. But I do think, to your question, we are seeing a lot more access to change than we ever were before. People Mm -hmm. are, whether it's through fear or opportunity, (laughs) people are listening. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the, the work that Tideline's doing around verification. Um, yes. Is, is there accountability? I mean, is, is there accountability in this space? And when yeah. you say like adding the management onto the impact measurement, do you mean that constantly adjusting the strategy based on the results? Is that what you're, is that what that differentiation is? I think so. I think it's part of it. And I think things like the operating principles that the IFC helped develop that a lot of large asset managers, Nuveen just announced a commitment, mm-hmm. KKR, I believe, is managing towards OPIM, OPIM, that groups like Tideline are able to actually take the framework and then take your data and say, okay, how are you doing? And are you doing it correctly? And what are the opportunities? It's not even just like it's working or it's not working. What are the opportunities for improvement and growth? So all of that, I think, is is adding the level of verification that you sort of you sort of mentioned, which is, okay, so you picked a framework, how are you doing? But I also feel like the the extra M that's part of the process now is also about holding investors accountable, not just to what they're measuring, but why they're measuring it. It used to be that if you created a measurement framework, which we do sometimes for our clients, so we're guilty as charged, but you create a measurement framework, you sort of identify a set of indicators that are manageable, measurable, you hand it over to the client, you say, measure this every year, good luck. Mm -hmm. hope to see you at the next industry conference. That's it. That's the end of the engagement. And I think what we're finding now is a few of the clients that we worked with about two years ago are saying, okay, you told us to measure. We've measured. Now you're going to do something, right? And we're like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, I guess we are. I guess we are. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we, we Spectrum have the benefit of unbelievable partners in this space that are far better measurement professionals than we are and just toss them over and feel pretty good about ourselves. But I think, I think that's part of it is that investors are driving the conversation on having made the measurement investment and now understanding that that's just a ton of data 
that they're sitting on that they can make meaning out of. And I think that's where management kicks in is you've already done the hard work. Now let's just see if it's working. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, I know we don't have a ton of time left, um, but I, I feel like I could talk to you about this stuff for, for hours. <laughs> what, what, what is the relationship of impact investors with like traditional financial market players and how has that evolved? Yeah. I'm sure if you polled like 100 impact investors, you'd probably get 100 different answers. But I would say I would say that the conversation between the traditional investment sector and impact investors started off as a conversation of convincing. So your question about concessions, I think, is a really important one because we found in our work that for some of the players that are not from this space, myth busting is a third, if not a half of the work that we do wow. over the course of an engagement. So no, returns are not concessionary, inherently concessionary. No, you don't have to chase first-time entrepreneurs that don't really know what they're doing and don't have a good business model because that's not a good investment. And why would you do that in the first place? So mm-hmm. trying to convince traditional investors that impact investments are still investments first is a really big part of our work. So we have to do that no matter what. And quite frankly, for us, that's not that frustrating because I think if you picked any domain and you had to convince someone to see your light, you would have to do some of that work. Yeah. <laughs> I think the other the other part of the conversation, though, that is new and that is a huge help to the convincing is the conversation around risk, externalities specifically. So it used to be really hard to convince mainstream investors that not thinking about environmental, social, or governance factors was was really you not deploying your risk framework effectively. Then, thank goodness, we got data. We started to see the negative ramifications of ignoring that stuff, particularly in manufacturing, commodities, textiles, and energy. And now the data kind of helps make the case for us. So most of the clients that walk in our door have already committed to doing impact investing. So we're looking at a very, very biased group of the <laughs> part of the market. But we are, you know, in those conversations, they talk about their peer groups that are starting to think about this. And it's mostly about minimizing risk. And I think our philosophy on this is whatever gets you in the door gets you in the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that we don't need to be pure about this. That as long as intention around making the right kinds of changes is the right intention. Whether you come out of fear or opportunism, doesn't matter. That in, There's an opportunity for some shared learning here. Um, and I think that that's, that's primarily how we're engaging with mainstream investors, is that I'm being overly simple, but whether they're in the fear camp or the opportunism camp, it's still the kind of camp that necessitates some action. So mm-hmm. kind of come on in. Have we, have we hit that inflection point where it's officially moved into... The conversation there, or, or, and if not, I guess what are the kind of major hurdles that the industry still needs to to overcome to get there? Yeah, I hate drawing too many parallels to COVID because we will get no, through please. this, and then yeah. it'll be a distant memory. <laughs> but uh, it's actually a, a COVID-like analogy pops into my head when you ask that question, right? So if you talk to all these very smart epidemiologists all over the world, they they continue to say that after the second wave, we'll actually learn our lesson. That, you know, we've had this peak, everyone's getting kind of comfortable, the weather's getting nice, <laughs> we're getting a little lax, and then the second wave will come and we'll we'll learn that that this is not something to take lightly. I think impact investing is on a similar trajectory. I think we've had our peak, we've had our moment in the sun, we've had every mainstream publication talk about this new way of investing. Uh, and so now we're actually in the in the trough. We're in the impact washing moment mm-hmm. where increasingly I think we find particularly investors and allocators, not more on the supply side of capital doing the bad stuff, but we see organizations, funds specifically, slap an impact label on an existing product and hope to get away with it. And I think there are 
a ton of asset managers out there that have been caught out for this. There was a great article in Impact Alpha about BlackRock having to sort of redo their naming convention because Mm of sort of a lax commitment to ESG. Um, That's where we are, I think. And I think we're going to have to pay the price of some of that impact washing in seven to 10 years when these funds sort of see their moment uh, and we get to see what impact really looks like. And then hopefully we will have our second wave and we will have our learning lesson that we have to bake intention into the design. Otherwise, we're actually just hurting ourselves. So I'm very optimistic for the future, but I do think we are somewhere in our low point where mm-hmm. there's enthusiasm and expectation and we're probably going to get it a little bit wrong and then we're going to rebound. Could you give a quick like definition of impact washing? And, and yeah. do you think that's the biggest challenge facing the industry right now? Yeah, it's... um. That's really, that's a really important question. So I would say that for us, that intentionality piece of the impact investing definition, why did you do this, is the make or break definition within what is and what is not impact. Because I actually think you can make really, really great commitments around measurement and transparency, even if it wasn't an impact built product. And I think that's really meaningful for the space and want to encourage that conversation because we don't need to be kicking anybody out of the tent. But if a product is built without impact as part of its motivation, then when you're evaluating success, you're not evaluating success based on impact criteria because impact criteria is that double bottom line. So when you work it in after the fact, it's sort of like it's sort of like weighing in for like a bodybuilding competition and then they ask you afterwards what weight class you want to be a part of. Oh, I'll just be part of the weight class. I don't know why this is my analogy today. <laughs> don't have any bodybuilders in my family. Don't know much about that. Yeah. But like, which weight class do you want to be a part of? Oh, the one where I qualify. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, we'll Mm -hmm. add you there. So I think definitionally for me, it's around intention. And the ramification is that we will have products out there that fail on the impact metrics and that will bring the class average down. And I think that you know better than anyone from your conversations that there, this has been hard going. This has been a lot of convincing for some time. And I actually think that that takes the wind out of people's sails. So for for me, I think the impact washing really threatens, quite frankly, the average, the average of success. But also, I have been pleasantly surprised, at least over the last 18 months, how quickly the folks that are doing that are are finding their narratives unwound pretty quickly, mostly because LPs, whether they're family offices or single asset owners, are asking better questions. So now in the diligence process, you know, it used to be, you have a great brand, you've started an impact fund, here's my check a lot of individual investors are saying, show me your measurement framework. Why did you build this fund? Who are your key portfolio managers or investors? What do they believe in? Where do they come from? We're getting wiser. Uh, So I don't think we're going to be in this valley for very long at all. I actually think we're coming out the other side. But I think the fear is just that, you know, we've been trying to convince people that this is the new way of investing. And uh, anything that takes us back is sort of a disservice to the field. Yeah, it 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 has gained enough momentum that some of these players are trying to brand funds as impact as a marketing tool and maybe, you know, without the, the intention that you're talking about. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to like, I don't want to mention, but, but like, (laughs) you know, having a, a racial equity lens fund that the parameter is like, you know, one or two people of color in the C-suite, right? Like that doesn't really, if your goal is racial equity, having a person of color in the C-suite doesn't get you there. So it's 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 kind of a, a lazy way of, yeah. of marketing as an impact product because there's been this this surge in interest in the the field from a from an LP standpoint. 
Absolutely. You hit it, right? It's a laziness because it, I think I think the fund managers out there that are actually changing the game on the amount of venture capital that goes to minority founders, mm-hmm. they would tell you if they were here, and I know that you've talked to a lot of them and SoCap does a great job of supporting <laughs> so many of them, they would tell you that it's a hundred times harder. It's a hundred times harder to run a fund that has more than one objective, no matter what the objective is. And then you pick a deeply entrenched systemic problem and we're off to the races. It's like saying, how come your rocket ship doesn't go to space? We're building (laughs) rocket ships for space. Like it's, it's so beyond the pale of what's possible. And I actually think that that laziness, it runs the risk, right? Of convincing really smart people who are going to get into the impact investing game to just go in a different direction. Because if, if both of those efforts are rewarded equally, how are we changing anything? Right. And that's the, that's the risk of impact washing that you were talking about. Um, Last question what what do you think is next for for the industry? Where do you see the industry going in the next couple of years? Great question. I <laughs> my my vision, such as the naivete of youth, but my vision <laughs> is probably not in my lifetime, but maybe in my nieces and nephews' lifetime that that we actually retire. Impact investing doesn't exist anymore because intentionality just becomes a natural order of investment. So whether, whether, however people answer the question of why am I investing, it's asked and it's asked and then it's programmed for. And I think that in the next couple of years, we have a real opportunity actually to invite more people into that conversation and to be a little bit less protective of the term. Because in, in my opinion, not having the term is going to be the key to success. And so I've seen some really, really catalytic change makers, like some of the groups we talked about, starting to promote that message that we don't need to be protective about this space, that we've actually won when everyone feels like they're a part of it. I don't know what it looks like, but (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. the vision, I think. So you're saying like by putting the label impact investing on it, you're inherently separating it from traditional investing, whatever that means. So they'll, the goal is for them to, to merge into one. Yeah. And we're not there yet. And I know that, yeah, we're totally not there yet, but I, I actually think we're closer than we think. Well, that's encouraging. Is is there anything? (laughs) I I hope you're right. I I think uh, over the last few years, I mean, we've certainly, it's been encouraging to see. Um, Is there anything that that I haven't asked you or that any important industry information that that, that somebody who's being introduced to the field would would need to know? What a great conversation, really seriously. I, I think the only thing that I would say is that there are some really, really, really great resources out there. Spectrum has tried to Add just a little bit on top of that pile. But honestly, for anyone interested in this space, check out the gin, check out MIE, try and attend a SOCAP conference. Like there's so much great information out there. We're getting better at making it accessible. And that to me is hands down the most promising part about all of this is that you can become an impact investor no matter where you are on your own journey. And that's kind of cool. I'm very excited. My next conversation after this one is going to be with Beth Bafford from Calvert. And we're going to, we're going to dive amazing. into like how she moved 100% of her personal investments into impact investing. So that'll be like yeah. the, the, the follow on to this will be how do you how do you do it? That's going to be a great conversation. I will definitely be listening. <laughs> well, Rana, thank you so much for taking the time. This My has pleasure. Been, been great. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Rahana Nathu, founder and CEO of Spectrum Impact. If, like me, the most common question you get from friends and family is, what is impact investing? We ask you to uh, share this episode with them. Share it with anyone who you think would be curious to learn more about the field. 
If you want to get in touch with me personally, you can reach me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com or on social media at the handles at SoCap Markets. In two weeks, we have another really great episode, this one with Beth Bafford from Calvert Impact Capital, where we, in some detail, go through her process of shifting her own personal portfolio to 100% impact alignment. So if you're curious about how you actually do this work, how you can get started impact investing yourself, stay tuned. In two weeks, we'll be back with a new episode.